When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. Today we're taking a long look back at a most unusual summer through the prism of the reading we've been doing and what we've been liking, what we've made it through, how we felt about it. Um, you know, it's kind of weird. I think some of our picks reflect something about the world and some of them don't. Uh, I think... My reading for sure has been affected by the world, my energy level, just the very strange terrarium of experience that we all are going through right now. Um, and I'll be so curious to hear what your picks are here in a second, Rebecca. I guess the first thing I want to know is, are you reading more, less, the same? Can you even tell? And if so, how can you tell? Less. I do have a sense of it because spreadsheets. Um, yeah, less... Less than a non-COVID year, but not a whole lot less. Um, it has felt like less, but I think it's because I've been reading and my reading patterns are different. Like, it'll there will be like days-long stretches where I don't read anything at all, and then I get a Saturday where I read a whole book. Um, or like, I've been reading one or two chapters a day of stamped from the beginning for the last like month and a half. Um, so it's like these little snippets. Um, but I, my total for the year is probably going to come in under what my total for last year was, and that's okay. Um, but it's, I think reading has been, I don't know, serving a different function to me or like what I'm wanting to read, what I'm drawn to in books is definitely different right now. Yeah, I'm certainly reading less. There's there's no question about it. And and some of it is to be expected just in terms of the way that my days are shaped this day. You know, my audiobook listening, my podcast listening is down a lot. I just don't have a lot of time when, you know, frankly, it's just me doing the dishes, doing the, you know, going to the grocery store, you know, working around the house, the interstitial times where I'd have an audiobook on and I'd be by myself. Just it feels weird when there's other people around all the time. I have music on more often, other things like that. Um, the other thing that's happening is I'm, since I'm doing more digital, um, I'm using Libby a lot more. I'm not buying stuff, but Libby is there. My kids are using it. I'm using it. We're having a really great time using it, but so is everybody else. So the wait times for anything even relatively new at all can be really kind of insanely long, 18, 24 weeks. Uh, my son Ames was looking for the next in the series the other day. And so what I've been finding myself doing is, you know, going way back in the TBR pile of stuff I've always wanted to get to and pulling stuff off that's two, three, four, five years old, stuff that they still have an audiobook version of uh, a license in my library. But, you know, so it's old enough that it's not a huge wait list, um, but not so old that they don't have it anymore. So a lot of middle backlist is something I've been reading a lot too. So uh, how about, what are, what are you finding right now? One way that my reading has shifted is that 
in a in in a normal time or like in the before times, um, I was getting a ton of book mail and I, you know, didn't keep most of it because a lot of it was unsolicited, but I always had a stack of galleys that had come in the door that looked interesting. And when I when it came time to pick something new to read, I could peruse that or look at, you know, what I just felt like reading from my personal stack. And book mail has stopped <laughs> um, during the pandemic, which is totally fine. But how so like how I choose books is different. Um, I'm buying a lot more books because I, I am on that keep my favorite indie bookstores alive train. Um, I'm buying a lot more books. I'm listening to fewer audiobooks because I'm running fewer errands. I'm going fewer places as well. Um, but the balance, I think, between print and ebook has stayed about the same. I'm either like buying an ebook occasionally or downloading a digital galley of something that I really want to read. All right. I, that's enough preamble. Uh, let's take a quick sponsor break and then let's, let's get into them. You know, we, we didn't talk about this before, how we're going to do this. <laughs> this actually, uh, I don't have a ranking or anything else like that. I just kind of have a list. How do you want to do this? Do you have a list and how, how are they ranked? Ooh, I think about, yeah, I did make a list. One, two, three, four, five. I have six. I have about the same, but I, I know one thing is true, that we have one in common that I think we're going to want some spend some time uh, talking about together. Um, in anticipation of, I don't, were we even talking about, I'm not even sure if we were talking about anticipation of this show, but came up that I had listened to Intimations by Zadie Smith, which is her essay collection that just came out. Um, and it's about this time. It's about the time of COVID. It's about the spring into summer of 2020. Um, I did it on audio. She's the narrator, which I have to say is a revelation. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. It's short. Um, I think it's only like just under two hours on audio. And and frankly, I usually listen at 1.2 speed, but about five minutes in, I realized that I don't want this to go fast. I need to roll around in this for a little while. I've never heard her do her own audiobook before. I don't think maybe she hasn't done her own audiobook before, but what what a revelation. And I hope forever and ever, amen, she does her own audiobooks, but boy, she's a wonderful narrator. And I've been avoiding reading a lot of sort of think pieces about COVID right now. I want my information. I want my reportage. But I really just haven't wanted someone's hot take, um, something that someone dashed off and didn't really think about it. And I didn't even know I wanted a writer writer to spend some time and let me in and let me see the world I'm seeing through their eyes. And that's what really she's done here. It's a remarkable collection um, that covers COVID, covers the Black Lives Matter protests. It covers being in New York. It covers having kids. It covers, you know, whatever the range of emotions that so many of us are feeling right now. And I was, it was a breath of fresh air was wrong. Uh, it's not quite that kind of relief, but the kind of relief you feel when someone kind of gets what you're saying, gets what you're feeling. And that's really rare. And to me, I needed it way more than I thought. And it really sounded like uh, you did too. When we were talking the other day and repeatedly assuring each other that we, that we were going to save it for the show, <laughs> um, I was telling you, like, I had been kind of circling around this and I had downloaded it on audio, but I hadn't made myself listen to it until you popped up one day on our Slack and we're like, this is really great. And it's what I needed to listen to. And I like, I think I was waiting for someone to say that because I just couldn't decide, especially given what my reading has been functioning to do for me lately, if I really wanted to like think more about the pandemic than I already am. Um, and, but it felt to me like 
finally having a grown up in the room um, of somebody just talking from her experience. And I think your description a few minutes ago was really great that all of these touch on COVID in some way and are shaped by the pandemic and by her experience, especially living in New York at the beginning of things. But it's not like a day to day journal of life in the pandemic, which I think is the thing that I was afraid of. Like I've lived in my yeah, like I've lived in my own brain for the last six months. I don't need somebody else's take on existential dread um, for 120 pages. But it was it, it like just so thoughtful and lovely in its way. Um and very, very human. And like, that's, I think that's what really touched me about these is, you know, an artist looking at a really difficult moment in human history, um, in human experience. And there is stuff certainly from inside her own head and her own emotional experience of this, but a lot of looking out at the world and looking out at other people and thinking about community, um, my favorite piece from it is one that um, talks about the virus of racism and that analogy was really thoughtful that she weaves together all the things that are happening in our world right now that are really happening um, in the U.S. right now. It's just, man, it's just so good. It's just so good. And I have to admit, um, I was surprised to find myself so entertained by her sense of humor. I've always thought for, for some reason this kind of arch or cooler. Um, I don't know if it's the accent or, you know, on beauty, which is a really good novel, but it's academic, but she's a wonderful mimic, a wonderful, um, has a wonderful ear. And half the pleasure of it is listening to her do the voices of the people she's describing, um, to move in and out of accents, to move in and out of modalities. Um, and she sings and she hums and she, you know, she has a really great narration voice. And so it's even more surprising when she breaks out of it for a second. And you combine that with expert AAA levels of sentence level craft. And I was just really, really blown away. I wanted to go on for six hours. It's a kind of thing. It doesn't happen very often, but it's the kind of book that frankly makes me want to pick up the, the, the pen, the type, and start typing and, and, and try to do the thing that writing can do. I think she falls into that category that we talk about of like, she's a real like writer's writer and a reader, like a reader's writer also. A couple of years ago when Swing Time, when the Swing Time novel came out, I was out at like a public yoga event and I had a Swing, uh, um, swing Time tote bag and someone stopped me and was like, is that a Zadie Smith tote bag? And I was so shocked. <laughs> That like someone just out in the world was recognizing the cover of a Zadie Smith book on my tote bag, which, you know, if I were running around with something more pop with where the crawdads sing on a tote bag, which don't send me that one, like lots of people would recognize. And there's, of course, a huge gap in there. But I think, yeah, she's in that class of like great writers that readers love once they've discovered her, but she doesn't get the the big publicity push. And I think it's because the fiction is quiet, like in her essays, like there's a real quiet, thoughtful quality to all of her work that doesn't lend itself to like flashy um, promotion. She's not out doing flashy stuff. Like we're not getting Zadie Smith's Instagram feed advertising her book 
you know, for months at a time. Um, she has just, like, I, she doesn't need it, I think. Um, but if she wanted to like break into that big caliber of like household name writers, something would need to shift. I'm kind of happy that she's like a best kept secret. <laughs> oh, I, I totally agree. Did you get the sense that this is kind of a different mode that she has? I don't know that, that, that she is being more vulnerable or maybe we're more vulnerable. Like, does that make sense to you at all? That, that feeling? I did too. And, and she's like, you know, there are points where she's like humming or singing to us, um, that you get that it's more personal and open. Um, vulnerable is a good word there that you kind of get a glimpse of like what it would be like to sit down to dinner with her. And she's telling you about like the character she saw walking down the street that day and, and what that person sounded like. Um, I think we have to talk about like format recommendations. Like I'm going to end up buying this in print so that I can read these essays and like spend more time and underline some things and revisit them over and over. But I think absolutely start with audio. Like what an experience it, it was. It was just like a balm to, to the soul. And I, you know, I don't think I even know, I, I didn't even know that I wanted this, which is the novelist power of observation of the moment to, you know, to, to see this moment through the reflection of someone whose profession in Zadie's, I think is especially about observation and accounting and chronicling um, of the moment that's happening. You know, I don't want the scientist doing this. I don't want the, the, the policymaker do with this. I don't want this epidemiologist doing this, but I needed to have a novelist do something different for me and I think it did that. And they're not very long. You know, they're pretty short. But each one of them felt like a glimpse of something I knew but needed refracted. And each one of them has its own revelation without being ponderous or out being, you know, too weighty, right? The longest one is like 10 minutes, maybe. They're maybe 14 minutes. Like you could listen to one essay at a time, you know, when you're stepping outside for your 10 minute breather between the workday and dinner or whatever, like, <laughs> this is what happens in my life. Um, you could, you could, you know, enjoy them over some time. I found myself not wanting to stop once I started. So it was more like, listen for the 12 minute drive to the grocery store and then sit in the parking lot for another 12 minutes. <laughs> and, and that's a rare feat right now. I, I don't think there's any question about it for to linger um, with someone who's thinking and writing about this, I find myself wanting to escape it. But that just what you said, that you wanted to spend more time with someone thinking and seeing like this, um, I, I don't know if I can give it, frankly, uh, any higher of a recommendation. I, I think when you were talking a few minutes ago about sort of that writing like this can make us feel seen. Um, I felt that too, because I think we've, I mean, my own experience of this has been days that I pass between like silliness and rage and exhaustion and a blip of joy and, you know, forgetting for a second what's happening in the world and just cracking up about something with a friend. And she hits all of that, that sort of whole spectrum of how our humanity exists inside this really hard thing. Um, it's, man, it's so good. I'm going to go like listen to it again when we hang up. <laughs> We we have to stop talking about it because we're, you know, 15 minutes in here. we got other books to talk about, Intimations by Zadie Smith. I th I'd say we're recommending that one. Um, all right, time for a sponsor. All right, Rebecca, here we go. Uh, 
I guess we can see if we have any thematic connections or anything else like that. I'm not sure how yours are organized. Mine are just, that's how I kind of remembered them. So uh, does that sound good? How, how do you want to do this? Um, mine are just in the order that I read them, so I can bounce out of that. But my list, my yeah, my list begins with um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, subtitled Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. Um, this has been on my shelf for years, like four or five years, I think, almost since it came out, that... Um, when I was going through my when women were birds phase, everyone was like, you need to read Braiding Sweetgrass. It's going to, it will ring those same bells. And I believed it, but I also like just had not picked it up yet for whatever reason, you know, that books end up on your pile and you don't read them yet. And at the beginning of COVID, like all I could do was like take walks and sit outside and read Mary Oliver. And when I finally got to the place of like, okay, maybe I can read something else. Like maybe there's room for someone's voice in my head besides my own, which took a while. Um, reading about nature felt like the right thing to do. And this was on my shelf. So um, Kimmerer is... A Native American woman, she has a PhD in botany, and she weaves those things together in this beautiful exploration of humans' relationship to the natural world and the specific context of Native Americans' relationship and understanding of the natural world, but then how that both intersects with and bumps against her training as a scientist. Um, she's a member of the Potawatomi Nation, and they teach that plants and animals are our oldest teachers, that they have their own spirits. And that's not a scientific idea. That doesn't jive with the way that PhD scientists are doing things in their labs. And she has found ways to embody both of those identities and bring them together um, in, in, in a way that's just so thoughtful um, and made me want to, it made me like download a bunch of apps that tell you what all the plants around you are and bird identification apps. Cause I was like, I want to know the names of everything. Like if I can't leave my yard, I want to have a new relationship to everything that's in my yard. Um, and it really helped like the, the book really helped. And that framing of, um, that there's always something new to discover if you're looking closely at what's right around you was really helpful for me. Um, and there's this great chapter about like, there's these salamanders that live in, um, she lives in upstate New York at the time that she's writing this. And like once a year, all these salamanders try to go back to the pond that they were born in, in order to mate and, you know, produce the next generation. But in her part of the country, they all have to like in her town, the salamanders have to cross a really busy road to get to, the pond and she and her daughter are out one night trying to carry salamanders across the road just like you know in the middle of the night in the dark it's driving rain and they're just carrying salamanders across the road trying to save them um so beautiful and just such a um thoughtful and i've said thoughtful a million times but like a really um reflective and inspiring i think way of um engaging with the world. And it was exactly what I needed. You know, that's one of those books I've been meaning to read too for a long time. Fits very well with my next pick here in a second. And surprisingly durable. It's like, it's, I don't want to say it's a cult book, but there's a lot of really good fans of this book out there. There's a really beautiful, like hardcover special edition um, coming out in October. That's, that's a reissue 
yeah, it, it has a new introduction. Um, it is, oh, it's being released in honor. Um, it's published by Milkweed Editions, and they are having their 40th anniversary this fall. So part of that celebration is new editions of some of their big titles. But I I will be buying that as well. Okay. Um, my pick is also something that took me a while to get through once I started, and I've been meaning to read it for um, a really long time. It's called The Idea Factory, uh, Idea Factory by John Gertner. It is a history of Bell Labs, which is the was the arm. Maybe it still exists. I'm not even sure, but it was the research and development arm of AT and T, really from the 19 teens all the way until the 1970s, 80s, something like that. But especially focus on the really fertile, remarkable time um, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s and 60s too, where the transistor, radio, radar. Uh, satellite technology, semiconductors, just so many of the foundational technologies that undergird the digital lives we live today were invented, developed, refined, and deployed. And it's a really fascinating look at how ideas happened, how technology at the time was developed, interesting personalities like Claude Shannon, probably one of the more underknown scientists and thinkers of technology um, basically invented what we understand as information theories operating um, and you know encryption and cryptography were also at stake here and it was just a different mode before the VC startup you know technology as money machine more in the NASA kind of mode of technology and science as a tool for you know, it's kind of a cliche now to, to improve the world. Um, and AT&T itself was a natural monopoly and an unbelievably and unfathomably powerful in its own way, in its own time. You know, at one point, the network, as it was called, um, interesting, you know, social networks was preceded by the network, was AT&T's coast-to-coast international network. Some called it the largest machine that was ever created, may ever create, you know, that AT&T owned from handset to switch and switch and back. Um I think at one point it had like uh, as the AT&T's annual revenue was bigger than all but like six countries, uh, GDP of those six countries. And it was just a just a really fascinating deep dive into a part of history that is somewhere between the everyman history, but also not the top line po- political, economic and war kinds of stories. Um, we tend to get. So I really, really enjoy it. I think if you have someone in your life who likes nonfiction, who likes science, um, and who likes to understand how the modern world came to be what it, what it is now, the Idea Factory is a really good one um, to get on there. And I can tell you right now, it's available on Libby, uh, so, so you can find it. Okay. Uh, enough of that one. Rebecca, what's next on uh, your list? I mentioned this one on a previous episode, so I won't talk about it for too long. But The Beauty and Breaking by Michelle Harper was another book I read early, on the early end of COVID where it was like, I just wanted humans to talk to me about their lives. Um, and this is a wonderful memoir that a friend was like, you're going to like this. Um, Michelle Harper is a black woman. She is an ER doctor, and she writes about the experience of being a you know double minority in the world of medicine, but also um, the particular places that she has chosen to practice have put her in touch um, with marginalized communities, being in the ER in general, but she's worked in um, veterans hospitals 
extensively as well. And that comes with its own set of complications and difficulties. Um, I read this before George Floyd was killed. And I think that um, if I had read it afterwards, it would have had an additional layer also because she talks about um, police bringing folks into the ER. She talks about advocating for a patient's rights to not be treated in certain ways just because officers bring them in and say that a certain thing needs to happen and what it's like to um, to be a black woman who is in the position of authority in the hospital but dealing with police officers um, and the authority that they bring in as well um, and the, those complex and challenging relationships um, that can happen with police and folks that they've taken into custody, um, who has the control and who has autonomy and how does that all work, um, that the rules are relatively clear, but how you stand up to them and try to have them enforced is not always um, what it's been like for her to make that a priority in her work um, is something that I've been thinking about as all of this has been going on and um, following her online, seeing her be able to weave um, that part of her experience and expertise into talking about what's going on um, in the world right now. It's a, it's a really wonderful memoir. One of the things I love about it as well is that she talks about her meditation and yoga practices as really central um, to how she manages the stress and anxiety and just like all the human stuff that comes in at you doing work like this, how she holds her own center calm um, was fascinating and really relatable. Um, so that's, yeah, The Beauty and Breaking by Michelle Harper. Yeah, I'll follow up on the tip of uh, talked about a little bit on the show before, but to mention it here, Deacon King Kong by James McBride. You know, probably going to be such a fun age, Vanishing Half. Maybe this one. Those are the three. I think Deacon King Kong is probably my favorite so far. It's a mix of humor and social issues and plot. It's, it's going to be tough to beat. Um, set in 1960s in uh, a gentrifying neighborhood in Brooklyn, sort of gentrifying. There's kind of uh, the demimond slash... I don't know, hucksters um, that live around the town. I described it to a friend as like, what if Colson Whitehead wrote The Big Lebowski um, with a little bit more, well, a lot, a lot more, um, you know, social uh, consciousness, frankly. I'm not sure Big Lebowski has any at all, but it has a madcapness to it um, and, a, and a sense of place that's really pretty great. And McBride is just really, really funny. I, I think why I say Colson Whitehead, Lebowski, it has Whitehead's invention, but Whitehead can be kind of droll. I mean, he's a funny guy, but he's more droll than, you know, laugh out loud funny or make you chuckle or write the real zinger. Well, McBride really can. And I think it's really a good kind of all-rounder, which if you like to read it all, you're going to find something you like in Deacon King Kong. I hope it does very well. I hope it gets picked up and becomes a great hit. I mean, Oprah picked it. So, you know, like, like I always say, she and I are kind of right there when we're thinking about what to read. But that's Deacon King Kong by James McBride. Looking forward to uh, just saw a couple of still images from the Good Lord Bird production, which is coming, I think, on Showtime in October, which we're going to be talking about uh, in a different context. So that's my next one. Uh, Rebecca, where, where do you want to go here? 
This one, I think, has been picked by a big book club. I'm pretty sure it was the Jenna Bush Hager Today Show book club. But if it hasn't been, I will be shocked to see if it doesn't. It's Friends and Strangers by J. Courtney Sullivan. Um, She writes just great, compulsively readable fiction about family and domestic situations. Um, I love that all of her novels rotate on that carousel of characters where we get to be in a bunch of different characters' heads. And this one is about um, a couple who have recently recently left New York and moved to the Burbs a few hours away um, to so the husband can pursue uh, his dream. The wife, Elizabeth, she's one of the main characters, is missing her work as a journalist and author. Um, they have a relatively young baby. Elizabeth has not made friends with any of the women in the neighborhood because she doesn't find she can't find ways to relate to these women that she sees as suburban and she's still from Brooklyn and she's just lonely and sad. Um, She's also keeping a huge secret from her husband about the state of their finances. And then they get a nanny who is a young woman who's about to graduate from the local college in town. Um, This young woman has a troubling boyfriend from London who's much older. And we also spend time with the babysitter. Her name is Sam. We spend time in her head and with in her life with her friends as well. Um, She becomes woven into the fabric of Elizabeth's family in a way that is boundary crossing um, because of like in a cringy way of a lonely suburban lady like confiding too much into her 19 year old babysitter, um, not boundary crossing in like a dangerous abusive way. Um, There's a lot of ground you could tread there. So I felt like that was an important distinction. Um, And they have like a family member who's caught up in conspiracy theories and a whole bunch of other stuff is happening. Um, Sam is really naive and uh, is trying to like get involved in activism on her super white college campus by advocating for the women of color that work in the cafeteria, but she's misguided in her attempts. And Courtney is looking at sort of all these things at once. It's just a good, messy, human, really fun literary novel. All right. And with that, it's time for our last sponsor break. And then uh, I'll do some more, you'll do some more, and we'll be done here. My next one, again, it's one of these, going to get to it, looking around for something that's a couple years old. Though I think this one is maybe newer. It's, it's it's recently in paperback, so maybe a year old. I do find that year to two years, a real sweet spot for um, all of you Libby Power users out there. Burn the Place by Lena Reagan. Uh, it's a chef memoir, which apparently I really like chef memoirs. I, I don't know why necessarily. I don't consider myself a foodie. Um, not much of a chef, but for some reason, that's a nice intersection of food and memory and place and process that really, really strikes a chord with me. Um, she is in, I'd say the Bordanian tradition of chef memoirs of being really vulnerable and being very honest about, you know, the warts and all, uh, element of her own, um, chef's journey. But she's a lesbian from you know rural Indiana who has a circuitous, to say the least, path to becoming a Michelin Plus star, um, you know, ranked chef. And I really like this. She's also a, you know a, a studied as a writer at various times, and that really shows here. I think one thing that I'm finding with these chef memoirs, especially, is. There's a, I don't know, there's an, the the honesty is is great, but there's a lot of time spent on the doing of the drugs and the drinking and the misbehavior, which I understand is part of the story. And frankly, 
I guess I'm a little tired. Not tired is wrong, but I, I've heard that story. Um, and when she's talking about her family and her relationship to food and her relationships to other people that were enacted, enabled, and otherwise facilitated by food, how it became a bridge, that part I found really great. The stuff about waking up drunk in jail, I was like, okay, I get this. Uh, maybe that's the, the darkness you have to get through to, to get to the light at the end. Uh, ultimately, I really did like it. I, it was on audio, and her she did her own narration, which I thought was really good. Um, memoirs on audio, chef's kiss, uh, no pun intended. So that that's really a place where it shined. I really, I guess I want the next book from her as much as I was interested in this book. And I, again, don't take me wrong, I did like this book. But I'm looking forward to what's their what's her next now that I'm here um, and I've arrived, which you only get to the really the last section of this book. But the future work I'm really, really looking forward to. I don't know if other people felt that about Bourdain with Kitchen Confidential. That was such a smash hit. Maybe it didn't feel that way. But his later work did, I think, more and more interesting things. And I think she may find, as you know, most writers do, frankly, um, she might find that She's got other places to go. But as a listening experience, um, it really was really pretty great. I read that in print last year, um, and I'm thinking it must have been great on audio. And now I have a recommendation for you. Um, I'm currently listening to Rebel Chef by Dominique Crenn. And I'm only like uh, maybe 20, 25% through it. But um, she is like half a generation younger than Bourdain was a um, French woman who moved to San Francisco when she was younger um, Love, you know, loves her life in San Francisco and also exists in this world of food and cooking, not just as a woman, but as a gay woman um, and writes about all of that as well. Also, she's also super fancy. Like, I think she was the first woman to have three Michelin stars in New York or San Francisco. Yeah. I, chef's memoirs. I'm telling you, it's something we both like, but I'm not, you can't get away with that easy. You can't do a wreck for me and use that as, as one of your picks. So it's, you, you kick the ball back to me, but now the, the ball is back in your court, I guess. Man. Um, well, now that I'm back on the fiction train, I have, I just, I devoured, I hold a wolf by the ears by Laura Vandenberg. Um, I didn't do that on purpose, but like the train was leaving the station as I was saying it. And I was like, well, here we go. Um, I love Laura Vandenberg uh, and her, I think she is one of the, she's a reader's writer as well who deserves more attention. Um, these are wonderful, dark short stories um, that have some fantastic elements and some horrifying elements, but mostly are stories about how scary just life in the world can be, but through the the lens of a really great writer. Um, lots of trigger warnings. Uh, there's suicide stuff early in the book, um, child loss, some other difficult things. I think I would be careful <laughs> around Leave the World Behind, or sorry, around I Hold a Wolf by the Ears. I'm looking at the wrong list here. Um, I'd be careful around this um, if there are some topics that are, if there are like common triggers that are difficult for you to read about, this is probably not for you. She hits on a lot of them. Um, but just phenomenal where you're like kind of reading through your fingers of like what's gonna happen and these people and like life is scary and being a person can be so messy and oh my god did they really just do that but also I couldn't stop um I really loved it those are brand new it has a good creepy cover too so I hold a wolf by the ears Laura Vandenberg you know I think this last one's gonna have to be my my last pick here uh not sure that I knew I was going to recommend this one. I, I'm not really sure if I'm recommended. Frankly, it's um, 
It's uh, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running by Haruki Murakami. It is a memoir, um, ostensibly, well, it really is, about his life as a runner. Murakami, it is that Murakami, the maybe most popular literary fiction writer in the world right now, certainly in his home country of Japan. He is as close as you're going to get to a rock star literary figure. I don't know we have anyone like him here in the States when it comes to art writing of this kind. We've got big, famous people who write books, but there is no one like Murakami. It's like Dickens was in England um, in the 19th century, that level of superstardom. And I'm not sure we're ever going to get a, a memoir memoir from Murakami. For whatever reason, he's chosen as a window into his life to talk to, to use his um, adult life habit as a pretty serious runner, um, running marathons all the time. He's run ultra marathons, everything along the way. And he talks about his career, um, but only kind of as it fills in the blanks around the parts of his life where it connects to running. And it's really, really interesting. And I don't know if that I'm recommending. I'm, I'm going to take that back a little bit. I liked it. And I think if you are interested in writer's lives, you're interested in running, you're going to like this. But I, I just don't know how many people like that there are out there because I've got to tell you, this is this is a confession. I've got a very, I don't know how to put this, but a very delicate and shameful. <laughs> delicate and shameful, the eternal show title. <laughs> it's true. I, I don't even really like to talk about it. So I was picking it up for a variety of reasons. Plus, you know, if you know me at all, listen to the show, I'm interested in the history of writing and the particularities of what goes into making the reading world as we know it. And you get a lot of that too. And there's a famous anecdote in this. I don't know if it's true. I don't know. Murakami says it's true. I don't know whether or not to believe it. It's so specific that it almost has to be true. But Murakami is a fabulist of his own kind. So you can easily see how he make it up where he remembers the specific moment in his life where he's at a baseball game in Japan and a crack of the bat and the ball's in the air. And he has this kind of a strike of inspiration, revelation, motivation, that he wants to be a novelist. Um, and it's going to be, I think it's going to be one of those stories like uh, in the literary world, like, you know, the apple falling off the head and, and hitting Isaac Newton. Um, but he's so guarded still that as he's telling you about what running means to him, you still feel like there's a wall there and he doesn't really ever get into why running so important to him. He's trying to tell us something I feel like with the book and the memoir and the stories of running, but either he doesn't know or can't quite tell us what running means to him and what he's trying to communicate. And I just found it really beguiling um, and, and, and in a good way. And beguiling is a Murakamian mode of operations. So I don't know if it's happenstance. I just sort of baked into the pie when you're opening up the Murakami oven, but I really was taken by it. Um, he's an erudite person. He's a scholar, a scholar, expert, translator of world literature, famously translated the great Gatsby into Japanese. This is a translation, um, though he could probably have written it in English if he wants to, but chose not to but there's so many fascinating subtleties that go into a Murakami experience. And it's so different than reading a novel to see him operate in this other mode that um, I, I really enjoyed it too. And, I, you know, one of these silver linings is in a normal time when my tastes are different, 
I'm not sure. This is on my, one of those things that's on your list forever, like your Netflix queue, that thing that's, well, when we had DVD Netflix queues, that thing that sunk down to like number 30, kind of a purgatory where you're never really going to get there unless something really extraordinary happens. Well, it turns out um, something really extraordinary did happen. So that's what I talk about when I talk about running by Haruki Murakami, also probably available on Libby, on audio, if you're looking something uh, without a wait list. Okay, lightning round. Rebecca, anything you want to get in uh, before the for the buzzer here? I have two to like slip in. Well, okay, so the first one, like I Freudian slipped when I was talking about Hold a Wolf by the Ears, and it doesn't come out until October, so I won't do, or maybe not even beyond that, so I won't like talk a whole lot about it, but it's Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. Um, it is... I, I went into it cold, which is how I like to go into books, but it scared the crap out of me. I was not expecting it because his first two books were like, not, they were like on the breezier side, like good, substantial, breezy books. But this is about a family from New York who rent a house in the Hamptons for a week. And while they are there, nuclear war starts like you know the power goes out and they can't figure out why their cell phones aren't working and then eventually and there's this huge loud horrifying noise and then one of the kids gets sick and like i was like oh my god like i you know i read the whole thing in one day but partially because i needed to like be done being that scared like it it's great and it does feel like a level up um from his first two books, it's cool to see a writer growing in that way and the kind of fiction that they do. But it's it's very clear to me that like Ruman Alam has spent a good portion of the Trump administration having existential dread about like what happens if nuclear war breaks out while this person is in charge of the world and then spun it back to like what would one family's life be like in that moment. And it's as scary as you think. Wait a minute. So they're just out on vacation, just doing family stuff out in the middle of Long Island. And, you know, right in the middle of making mac and cheese and jumping on the trampoline, just like, boom, I'm having a hard time understanding this. Yeah, like they're in their like third day of vacation. Everything is fine. And then this, then the power goes out. And then the couple who own the house that they've rented show up and say that they were driving back into the city, but saw that all of New York City was out of power. And that seemed horrifying. So they've driven to their rental home. And is it okay if the family that's renting it, like, well, can can the owner stay there with them too? So then they're in this house. And the next day, there's a, a huge, loud, horrible noise that confirms for them that like the power going out was just the first part of whatever this attack is that's happening. The internet's not working either, and now like this is probably probably nuclear war. Um, but they're just in that house in the Hamptons in the middle of nowhere for like the first for 48 hours in the book. What I'm getting from this is I'm glad. You read this first. Maybe I'll read it, but boy, I'm glad I wasn't first. <sighs> it was rough. Uh, I mean, rough, but like a great book. But I feel like I was just unexpectedly very scared for a while. Um, nice to be scared of a different thing, I guess, <laughs> for a little bit. Um, it was great. And then I think we mentioned on a show a week or two ago, we were looking at a book list or something, Real Life by Brandon Taylor, which I just picked up. It had been on my stack for a while. And I picked it up and read it last weekend. And also like... Oh my God, it's so good. Like lots of trigger warnings. It is so good and it's so important. Um, but it's it's also set over like three days in the life of the narrator who is in a doctoral program in a Midwestern 
state and he's the only black person in the program he is the only black person in his friend group um he's gay some of his friends are gay and over the course of like these three days one of his straight guy friends starts up a thing with him he um, is on the receiving end of aggressions, both micro and macro, about his race. He um, reveals some significant trauma to some of the other characters in the book. And it's like a slice of life in a way that I think is important for, like, really brave of Brandon Taylor to have written this book. And it's slice of life that's important for people like me who are like privileged white people. Um, to consider, you know, what embodying um, marginalized existence would really be like. And I don't think that privileged white people are the audience of the book. Um, like, I'm not the intended audience for this, um, but there is a lot to take in and learn there. Um, it's it's really wonderful. He can write, the just write a sentence. Um, my heart was in my throat the whole time. <sighs> All right, I think we have to end it there. I just really want to read that book now. I think that's dumb, but I really want to read it. You can find show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. Choose email podcast at bookriot.com. Oh, before we go, well, I've already done the show. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Rebecca, tell us what the bonus episodes are coming up doing. What do we got cooking? Yeah, our Book Nerd Movie Club pick, which is going to be, I think, mid to late September, is The Princess Bride. That was chosen by members of Book Riot Insiders. Um, but we also have a big fall and winter preview coming up where we'll talk about the big releases. We're going to do another round of deals, 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 where, where you'll tell me about books I didn't know were coming out. <laughs> um, we're going to book club our way through Transcendent Kingdom by Yaa Jesse sometime in October. We'll talk about the Nobel Prize going to talk about Jack by Marilyn Robinson, the last of the Gilead books. Um, I am gearing myself up for the Gilead home Lila reread on the way into this. And th that's going to take some arranging of life, I think. <laughs> <laughs> arranging of life, a 2020 story. Rebecca, thank you. We can find us later. Thank you all for listening. Happy summer reading. Hope you all made it. Looking forward to the fall. We'll